From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the cross-asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg, and not the Mike Regan who was just nominated to lead the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, I, I will point out. Did you actually get Twitter followers after the announcement, Mike? Oh, after Weisenthal uh, congratulated me for the new job uh, as a joke, I, I, I got about <laughs> 20, 20 or 30 new Twitter followers. So hopefully they'll stick around for the dad jokes and market commentary, even though I, I don't have uh, a lot to offer on the environment. I'm a fan of the environment. I'm just not the guy in charge of it. So we'll leave it at that. That's hysterical. That's hysterical. And and for anyone who's not aware, Weisenthal, that's Joe Weisenthal. Uh, he's the host of the uh, Odd Lots podcast at Bloomberg. He does plenty of other things as well here. Uh, but if you haven't checked out the Odd Lots podcast, please do. Uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, but this week on the show, the U.S. dollar continues its decline as the MSCI All Country World Index trades at record highs. In addition to that, emerging market equities are on pace for their best quarter versus U.S. stocks since 2009. Will the momentum continue through next year and beyond? We get the state of play on international assets. And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I've got a contribution from none other than our Crazy Things correspondent, Vildana Hyrick, who, who said to me, I'm not telling Sarah about this one. I'm, I'm giving it right to you. So I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, she didn't even tell me that she was going to do a roundabout and come to you. I had no idea this was coming. But I will say we also have a, a trifecta uh, of guest write-ins. We have a voicemail. I got an IB, which for those who do not have a, a Bloomberg terminal, it's like instant message. It's your instant Bloomberg. And then I also got a direct message on Twitter. So we've got plenty of crazy things to share <laughs> this week. Thank, thank goodness for that, right? <laughs> but let's first start with that market talk that we know you all came for. And uh, happy to have a new guest this week on the show. He runs the International and Global Mutual Fund and ETF business at Davis Selected Advisors. His name is Danton Goey. Danton, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me on, on board. Very excited. Oh, great. You know, Danton, before we start talking about markets, I got to say, we get notes about the guests from, uh, you know, the, the PR people that you guys work with, our, our good friend Tyler Bradford in this case. I got to ask you first about something he pointed out, which I, th I think is fascinating. It says, every summer, Danton travels to a new international destination to live with his family until school starts back up. I, that's fascinating to me. For one thing, I'm glad my kids don't listen to the podcast because I, I don't want them to know that's an option for summer summer vacation. Ah. 
But I think that's a really cool tradition. Is that just for fun or is that as sort of uh, an international equity specialist? Is it part of your research? You know, and, and you don't have to tell me what you're expensing on your expense account or not. But I, I'm curious if it's <laughs> if it ties into your work or if it's just for fun. Yeah, no, happy to talk to Mike, uh, to your kids about this. But um, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely. He's, he's, he's going to block you. He's not going to let that happen. It is absolutely part of our research process to go visit companies, you know, in their home markets, in their offices, and talk to the companies, talk to the competitors or suppliers or customers. And since we are a global fund, those companies are around uh, the globe. You know, we're, our team is based here in New York, meaning that we travel a lot. But this is a way to really spend, instead of, you know, a week or two, on the ground in a country to spend two or three months. And so for the last dozen years, we've been doing this with my wife, with the three kids, and we alternate between Asia one, uh, one year and Europe the other year. You know, I grew up in France and I was born in Germany. So, you know, Europe in, in some senses, uh, my home, but my family is Indonesian Chinese and I speak Mandarin. So feel comfortable in Asia as well. So both places have a lot of contacts. And then the last dozen years have been able to build that network. So it's been a really fantastic way to kind of build a network over time and visit these companies and a lot of the companies that we own uh, in the portfolio. So yeah, I would highly recommend it. So really quickly, before we get to the markets talk, I, I have to ask then, do you have a, a favorite country or a favorite place that you, you've ever lived? You know, I think right now, one of the most exciting markets to be, and obviously 2020, you know, is sort of an asterisk is a, an unusual year, but it's been China over the last few decades to watch. You know, the first time I went to China was 1990, and it was a totally different country and market than it is today. But to be able to see the last three decades of evolution over there has been really fascinating. But of course, I have a soft part in my heart for France. That's where I grew up. That's where all my high school friends are. So it is always nice to go back home. It's where my mother, my mother still lives there. So um, it is nice to go home uh, there as well. And of course, the quality of life can't be beat over there and much more comfortable than China. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. That's a great tradition, and your kids must really benefit from the education uh, value of it, too. Uh, Sarah, I, I once was able to, to get a week in Jamaica to report about the stock exchange there, but De Denton's got me beat hands down, I think. Here. <laughs> this, this is Well, you'd have to persuade your kids, though, you know, because my kids go to Chinese summer camp with the locals in China or Taiwan or Hong Kong, depending on where we are. And then they go to summer camp, a French summer camp in France with the locals as well. You know, they've been kind of thrown in the deep end 
at an early age. <laughs> that's that's great though. Well, Dan, one thing I wanted to ask you, let's let's dive into the markets now. And um, yeah, I was looking at the holdings of the global fund at Davis, done very well, very, very strong percentile performance. And correct me, some of these numbers might be outdated. You know, we're, we're working off of whatever the most recent filings was, but about 40% of the global fund allocated to the US, at least of the last reporting we have for it. And here we are as the year sort of closes out here. And I think a big theme I keep hearing from investors is that everyone's looking outside of the U.S. for 2021, thinking that it's kind of time for international, for emerging markets to shine. Does that have you rethinking a, a big allocation to the U.S. at all? Or, or are you just you know sticking with what's worked so far and, and not worrying about sort of the, the consensus and the zeitgeist out there with, with what everyone's talking about rotating to international? Yeah, I mean, I think people, for good reason, are looking internationally. They have kind of said that, I think, the last two or three years, but the U.S. market has sort of just powered through uh, anyways. But there is a good reason to look abroad. Uh, right now, valuations are about 20 23% lower international markets on average than the U.S. market. So that's already a great starting point. And we know that the last decade, the U.S. market has been very strong, but these things go in cycles. So it's very possible that the next decade, you know, international markets do as well, if not better, than uh, U.S. markets. But you know, we run a very focused portfolio of uh, sort of 35, 40 sort of best of breed companies. So when we're looking at the U.S. market, we're not really investing in the overall market. We have a very concentrated and focused view of companies that we want to own, and we're finding you know very good opportunities there too. But we would say there's a lot of you know, froth also in the U.S. market that you want to avoid. But underneath that, there are some very good values for sure. You know, some companies that have done well recently are still relatively attractive, I would say. We call them sort of the growth stalwarts. They're sort of the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. You know, they continue to be attractive on a valuation basis, a long-term basis. But then you've got a whole host of stocks that have been out of favor now for a decade plus, right? The value stocks out there. And specifically, we're thinking about the financials and the banks that have been really out of favor, you know, basically since the financial crisis in 08, 09. So that was a long time ago uh, that are trading at really low valuations. In fact, when you look at the difference between the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 1000 uh, value performance, it's amazing. It's a record gap in difference. So I think, you know, owning the market overall in the US, probably not recommended but within that space, some great values. Let's come back to something that you just walked us through. You mentioned the word froth, but then at the same time explained how there's growth stalwarts. And just because you're a company that's performed very, very well over the last year, over the last decade, it doesn't necessarily mean that your time is over. Can you give us a sense of where you do see the froth, the areas where you see risk or that you would avoid, uh, and then maybe bring us through some of the misconceptions that there are? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of companies that have done great in the past few years, and specifically in 2020, that have you know up three, four, five, six times, uh, maybe even this year. But where the valuations in our mind, and we're, you know, we're value investors, don't make much sense. And they're great companies, they make great products, and I'm thinking, you know, specifically of, of a company like Tesla, which has done great, right? I mean, all, all Tesla shareholders have been very happy in 2020. But when we look at it and, they, you know, and see that they manufacture something like 350,000 cars and have a over 600 billion market cap, and then you look at General Motors, 
that manufactures 7.7 million vehicles and has a 60 billion, you know, so one tenth of the market cap. You know, one of those two things is probably wrong there in terms of how the numbers uh, will play out over time. You know, we don't own some of these stocks and they've done great in 2020. So kudos to whoever owns them. But we would say just on a valuation basis, there's quite a bit of froth in some of these. You know, there's just momentum in some parts of the market. You know, Dayton, looking at some of the top holdings uh, across uh, a few of the funds at Davis, a lot of the big sort of market dominating uh, firms in their industries are, are pretty heavily weighted. Uh, Al- Alibaba in China, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook uh, here in the U.S., and at the same time, there's this big buzz about the antitrust issue, uh, not only in, in the U.S., but in, in China, you know, uh, Tencent and Alibaba recently getting fined uh, because of some of their mergers in the past. I'm curious how you're thinking about that issue, antitrust. Is it necessarily a scary thing to be threatened with an antitrust probe? Yeah, it's certainly um, something that's in the news that's been you know growing as an issue over the last four or five years. You know, one that some of these companies like Google has been dealing with actually for a while now. In fact, they have been under investigation and dealing with uh, sort of fines and remedies in the European Union for five years now already. And they've been operating under that. And actually, I mean, that's a good case where despite all of that and a very strict uh, and aggressive antitrust policy, they have actually done fine in Europe. The market share is actually even stronger than in the US. And it's uh, well over 90% search market share, and their results have been very strong. So they've been able to adapt and operate well, despite you know, despite that. I mean, in some ways, of course, it's a little bit of a badge of honor in the sense that you've become so big, so successful, that right? people will have become very worried about you. And it does make sense as a society that we are concerned about these, you know, these, these huge companies, and they should be regulated. And so the regulators are definitely playing a little bit of catch up. Here. But in terms of an investor, uh, you have to really think about, okay, what, you know, what has happened in the past? You know, it's been relatively benign. What are the possible risks? And like you said, Mike, I mean, that would be a draconian measure. We haven't really seen that happen before. Uh, very often is sort of the breakup in sort of a, you know, the demerger of companies that have been merged for several years. But even if that does happen, it doesn't mean like this business is being nationalized and confiscated, right? And then China, it's interesting. I mean, They've actually had a much laxer antitrust policy than uh, even the U.S. So in some ways, they've been sort of more capitalistic than even than the U.S. But now they're realizing that they need to also, uh, you know, that some part, some behaviors are gotten too extreme. Uh, you know, online retailers are forcing brands to choose one of the platforms. You know, that's probably not great for consumers, right? It raises prices, it reduces selection. They are intervening, and it does make sense. Antitrust concerns is a quasi badge of honor. That's a different way to look at it. (laughs) From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, 
Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I wanted to ask you, Danton, um, say you are a, a U.S. investor and odds are you maybe have a home bias and you have a very, very large allocation to the U.S. We talk about how maybe it's a good time to start allocating internationally, but can you walk us through certain areas, uh, certain countries, certain regions that, that you think are right for growth right now and maybe would make a good investment at this point in time? Yeah. So I think when you go internationally, you have to be extremely selective. You know, in our funds, we really limit the number of countries that we're invested in. You know, there's, uh, for example, 26 emerging markets. We're really only in sort of three or four of them. And that's because, you know, the, the concerns around economic growth, political stability, sort of market access, uh, things like that uh, are important. Things that you maybe worry a little less in the U.S., you have to pay a lot more attention to when you're looking at an international market. So when they when we look through that and see which markets we think look really interesting, you know, China continues to look interesting. Uh, it's had, I guess, overall a pretty good year, but it's still under somewhat a cloud. You know, you definitely still hear, hear sorry, rumblings of the U.S.-China geopolitical strain out there and tension. And that's not going away, even if there is a change in administration uh, happening right now. So that's definitely true. But the conditions over there for economic growth are still quite strong. I mean, in fact, this year, China is going to be the, probably the, the only large economy that's going to grow. They're looking at sort of a 2%, you know, which is still not heroic. But, you know, with, with what happened with COVID and the pandemic, that's still pretty strong, 2% growth, whereas most countries, including the U.S., we're probably going to, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a recession. And the next year, expectations are sort of 7 8% growth. So obviously, pretty strong rebound off of a slow year. You know, increasingly the companies there, because of course you're not investing in the country or the market, you're investing in individual companies. The management teams, you know, keep on getting better and better, really high quality entrepreneurial management teams. And then the quality of the companies, they have some leading technologies there. If you think about, you know, who the top, say, cloud computing companies out there, of course you think of, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and Google, but the fourth largest is now a Chinese company, the Alibaba. Outside of China, I think Southeast Asia also looks pretty attractive. I mean, it's a conglomeration of sort of uh, six or seven countries, but together they have about a population of around 600 million people. So that's uh, almost half the size of, of China, for example. So a very large market together, that is uh, the demographics are favorable, where the economic growth is strong. So I think that's a pretty interesting area to, to look at. You know, then... Uh, uh, Latin America, uh, I think long-term also would be interesting. It's pretty fascinating, uh, Danton, to, to talk to a guy like you who has um, sort of discretion to to invest anywhere in the world, basically, uh, for, for at least a, a few of these funds. And I'm just, you know, it's such a huge universe of stocks out there around the world. I'm curious how your process works. You know, how do you start narrowing down that massive universe of, of stocks around the world? Is it sort of country by country, like you were just saying? Do you try to go by GDP growth? Is it a, you know, run a screen of valuations? What's what's the process like to hunt for that next buy? You're absolutely right, Mike. You know, there's uh, about 3,000 companies in the global index. That's a, you know, a huge amount of companies to follow and stay on top of and be familiar with. 
And of course, in that, there's lots of companies that you would never want to invest in, you know, state-owned enterprises, these old industrials and telecoms and utility companies or state-owned banks. In general, we're going to sort of avoid already that big part of the market because they're not really run for shareholders. They have other interests at heart. Um, but we really kind of focus on at the industry level, right? And so we're trying to understand whether it's consumer or industrials or sort of technology, where are the great companies? Where are, you know, innovation? Uh, where are the great brands anywhere in the world? And then so we'll, fo- we'll follow that lead. With that said, Mike, I, I'm pretty sure it's that time. It is that time. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Sir, why don't you get us started? You have a bunch of contributions from the voice. Oh, we have a voicemail. Let's play that. Hi, this is Tim. President Obama's high school basketball jersey got auctioned off for $192,000. This is more than what Michael Jordan's was for 173000 and LeBron James was for like 185 or something thousand. So President Obama's uh, high school jersey uh, for 192000 was the most expensive high school basketball jersey that has ever been auctioned. Always great to get a voicemail. Everyone, remember, if you want to give us a call, that number is 646-324-3490. And just as you heard, we may even play your message on the show. But not only did we get a voicemail, as I said earlier, we also got other write-ins too. So first, I'll read this one. This came through on the Bloomberg Terminal from Stephen Kaminsky of Jump Systems. Uh, So this is what he said. He said, we all already know one of the craziest moments in this crazy year was oil going negative in April. Perhaps Perhaps even crazier, though, is nine traders at Vega Capital were, as a group, the biggest sellers of WTI futures and spreads on that day. They made $660 million, even the son of one of the Vega traders who's in his early 20s with limited experience made $8 million. All caps, wild story. And I I do encourage, this is a great story. One of the reporters on this was Liam Vaughn. We had him as a guest on one of our prior podcasts. Uh, He's a great, great storyteller. Um, So I encourage you to go read it. And then I'll I'll read the other one as well. This one came through on uh, Twitter from at term management. He said the craziest thing in markets this week, uh, Full disclosure, he wrote this at the end of uh, last week too, but didn't quite make it in because we had already recorded the podcast. He said, Airbnb IPO getting plenty of attention for performance and early trading. Meanwhile, Pebblebrook Hotel Trust, this is PEB, the ticker is, priced $450 million of six-year paper at 1.75%. And then he went on to explain, you may be familiar, but the hotel reads carry basically all the operational leverage and the operators don't actually have much downside exposure. Current hotel occupancy is in the upper 30s. Uh, And then he went on, he goes, and yet creditors underwriting a yield of less than 2%, limitless investor appetite for anything related to the quote unquote reopening trade. And and it really is remarkable, Mike. It it really is. That's, I I believe that's froth with a capital F right there, if if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) But Danson, I'm curious what you think. You know, we've seen some really eye-popping IPO debuts in, in the last week or so. You guys seem to focus mainly on the the more mature companies. How you know big of an IPO? How how attractive does an IPO have to be to sort of catch your attention, or do you like to wait and see that a company's lasted a few years before you get involved? Yeah, I mean it depends. Um, you know, some of these IPO companies actually have been uh, you know large companies uh, operating at scale for many years, 
That might not have been the case 15, 20 years ago, because when you're that large, you know, you've already come public. But now with the strength of the private markets, uh, these companies have not had to. Uh, and then, you know, there's other reasons, you know, the Sarbanes-Oakley's and things that like that have just sort of dissuaded people from 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 coming public. And, and then the focus on quarterly earnings is sort of a turnoff as well. So there's been good reasons why they've stayed private. You see some of these companies coming out. They're actually relatively mature. We're very valuation sensitive. And so uh, we'll look at some of these. And if it makes sense, participate. But in general, we're really mostly focused on the publicly traded companies uh, out there. Interesting. Interesting. All right, Denton, before we put you on the spot for your crazy thing, uh, I'll give you mine via Vildana. Hi, Rick. And Sarah, I have very high expectations. It's a good one because it, it will allow us to play a little prices right here on, on what this is. Obviously, it's an alternative asset, uh, as you know, as is, is I'm uh, inclined to uh, delve into. Auction in, in uh, London by Christie's. The first commercially printed Christmas card is up for sale. It's a merry Victorian era scene that scandalized some who denounced it as humbug when it first appeared in 1843. And that that great lead is courtesy of the Associated Press. Uh, so it was controversial because it's a picture of a, a family having a big uh, happy Christmas meal, but they're all drinking wine. And there's even someone offering some wine to a, a young toddler at the table. So I think the, the temperance movement in, uh, in England in the, in the late 1800s was not very happy about this. So, <laughs> so it was very controversial. Uh, they say only 1,000 were printed. First commercial Christmas card. A thousand printed, only about thirty left. Sarah, knowing what you know about the alternative asset space, uh, what's your what's your price on this? Because you know I'm a professional now in alternative assets. That's right. That's I right. think the the common thread with these prices rights has really been that typically they cost much less than we're inclined to guess. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lowball it, uh, and I'm going to go. I'm gonna go six hundred dollars. Six hundred dollars. Okay. What a Scrooge. Jeez. Six hundred dollars. Denton, how much are you willing to bid for the uh, first commercially available Christmas card from 1840? I believe it is. Uh, I know. Uh, I think I just saw that like um, Gretzky's rookie uh, card went for a million dollars. That was a, yeah, uh, right? Saw, That's a good that one. That was actually, so that was going to be first, my personal crazy thing Christmas if we needed it. Card, uh, you know, maybe not uh, Gretzky levels, but certainly more than 600. Come on, Sarah. <laughs> every, look, every time we play Prices Right, I get something ridiculous like $200,000, $5 million, and everything is typically way below what I guess. So, so the wise move here, Danton, is for you to bid 601. Uh, that's what I would, that's what I would do. I, you know, I've watched, I'll put you down for 601. I, I, I watched a lot of Price and Right in my childhood, and uh, I, would, I would go 601, exactly. All right. So it hasn't sold yet. It's up for sale, I believe, this, uh, this weekend. Uh, they're thinking between 500 and 800 pounds, so between about 6700 and $11,000. Um, it seems a little low to me for the first Christmas card. I don't know. Okay, so I was I was right in the right range. 
You were yeah. The low ball bid was that was smart. I was expecting a, a six figure bid from you, Sarah. So it's good. <laughs> good to see you've got a little price discipline and you. Uh, I've I've learned to tamp down my expectations. Right. Even though Sarah <laughs> did just buy a Peloton, so I I, I uh, she's she's feeling the froth. I think she's feeling. I'm going to say it outright from my perspective. Maybe one of my best purchases of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. You've been oh yeah. That? I mean. Yeah, I, I I got it on Monday and I've already used it a couple of times. So, have, have you gotten have you gotten any shout outs from the instructors? I, I I feel like you're not really a Peloton rider until they one of those people in the Lycra shouts you out in the middle of a ride. I haven't done any of the live rides yet, but I'm planning to on Sunday. So I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know if I happen to get a shout out. All right, all right, interesting. Now, Danton, I'm not sure if they warned you about this gimmick, but have you uh, have you seen anything crazy in markets this week you can tell us about? Yeah, you know, I think there are plenty of things. You know, one of the most amazing things that I've uh, that I've seen um, is, you know, and of course, Bitcoin has been uh, a lot in the news, and of course, it's hitting records, right? Uh, it's triple this year or more than that. It's you know, twenty three thousand. Um, so recently, somebody launched a crypto index fund. You know, this is the Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund. It's the so the the top 10 uh, cryptocurrencies out there. Uh, you know, an index fund of that, um, and so the NEV of that per share is eighteen dollars and fifty cents. Guess what the price per share? And these are just you know basically bitcoins and some other ether and some other uh, currencies in there. Guess what the price of that? Uh, per share is nine. I'm, I'm gonna abstain because I because I read this. Okay, yeah. Sarah, let's get Sarah to bid. I read okay. it as well. I, mean, <laughs> I had to, you know, I had to. Uh, so in preparation for this, I looked at the data and I had to call my financials analyst last night and say, <laughs> "Can you turn your Bloomberg on and look at this?" So see, I'm not misreading this. So you know, <laughs> nope. the NAV is eighteen fifty. The price is ninety three dollars. Right. So the it's unbelievable. So the premium uh, is about 400%, 405%, meaning it's trading at 5x, right? So if you, you know, if, if, uh, if Bitcoin, and this is mainly Bitcoin right now, 77% Bitcoin in the, of those 10 currencies, you know, you know you, you, we, we, can, we can debate whether Bitcoin is a bargain or not at 23,000, but paying over 100,000 for Bitcoin when it's trading at 23,000, that just seems crazy. Uh, it, it makes you wonder uh, that people investing in this index, I mean, can they possibly know what they are doing, like what, what they are exactly buying if they're buying it at such a premium? You, you know, know it, right. I mean, it doesn't, you know, you can just go out there and buy the Bitcoin instead, right? At, at, at 23,000 right. instead of buying it for over 100,000. Um, well, I, so. I, I think I think part of, and uh, forgive me if I embarrass myself here by talking about crypto, because we all know I'm not exactly the world's leading crypto authority, but I think the issue is you buy some Bitcoin, it's not necessarily uh, safe and secure on some exchange. We read about all these exchange getting hacked and, and whatnot, and Bitcoin wallets getting looted. So I wonder if part of that premium, because the Grayscale Trust, which is a, an older uh, mutual fund that buys Bitcoin, has always had a big NAV premium like that. Not quite like that. I think it's you know like maybe 30, 40, 50% at some times. But I, th I wonder if people are willing to pay up for the security and knowing that someone else is going to store this, 
keep it safe and and you're not going to wake up and and see a, a zero balance someday uh, if if the exchange you're dealing with had get, had gotten hacked. I uh, my best guess. Yeah, no, that could anyway. be good. That, that could be that could be right. You know, or if you stored the, the information on your hard drive and and your girlfriend threw it away and you got to go into the uh, the garbage <laughs> dump <laughs> looking for the hard drive. But I think part of it maybe it's just that there's people out there are comfortably investing in equities. This is an equity. Yeah. Right. right. And so it's just easier. Yep. You can go onto your brokerage account and buy it easily. You don't have to buy, you know, you don't have to set up a separate sort of crypto uh, account. Uh, that might be part of it. That makes a lot of sense. But, you know, yeah. but paying 5X just seems That's absolutely uh, extreme. Right. And also also in uh, crypto and, I guess, IPO news, Coinbase has now filed confidentially to go public. So we're just going to ride the crypto train. <laughs> Oh, the, that that IPO is going to uh, I won't make any predictions, but boy, that'll be an interesting <laughs> IPO. Let's, we'll see. Well, anyway, maybe, Sarah, maybe if there are some crypto experts, I know we have a lot of crypto experts uh, who listen to us, even though we don't give them a lot of uh, a lot of content. But if anyone has any other ideas on why that fund is trading at such a premium, by all means, give our hotline a call and let us know. Please do, please do. Uh, and unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. But Danton Goey, thank you so much for joining the show this week. Mike, Sarah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gospore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.